Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Some people that are especially agitated with religion talk about uh, how uh, religion is something that very weak people take because it eases their, you know, softened consciences, that it, it's an opiate for the masses, you know, says Marx, that it's sort of a benzodiazepine that you take whenever you just can't handle the rough edges of life. Uh, Freud thought it was wish fulfillment, that, you know, you're pasting onto the sky gummy bears and gumdrops so that you feel a little better. I don't know. I think those critiques are ridiculous. I think they're extremely adolescent and un- underdeveloped because anybody who has ever actually taken Christianity seriously, especially the whole concept of confession, that is, the confession of sin, anybody who has taken that seriously knows that whatever we believe, it is not wish fulfillment, and it is certainly no opiate. Uh, so I want to talk to you today about confession, that is, Uh, this heart of our religious enterprise where we take responsibility for our serious moral defects. Because that is not for the faint of heart. And by necessity, includes a sort of existential death for you and for me, though it paves the way to a whole new life of liberty. But I want to talk about confession today uh, because of Psalm 51. But confession is a very difficult thing. I I remember, many of you know, that before I was allowed to enter the ordination process, the first question the bishop asked me, other than what is your name, is what is the worst thing you've ever done? (laughs) Um, I wanted to lie. Uh, I don't think I did, but, uh, but it was an invasive question that was meant to extract a confession and build trust, right? Well, Psalm 51 is not so much about confession to another person or a bishop or before the Senate, right? It's uh, you're confessing to God. Psalm 51 is about vertical confession. And Psalm 51 is probably, probably the most famous confession of sin in the Bible. And here's how I want to talk about this psalm tonight. Psalm 51 is a, a royal confession. It is distinctly a royal confession that contains the ingredients for all true confession that you and I uh, can express in this place and express privately. But we have to begin with the immediate context of Psalm 51 and see very clearly that this is a royal confession. That is, this is a particular kind of confession offered by a particular sort of person, namely Israel's monarch. It's a confession of a particular king for a particular offense. Now, King David is heralded as the great hero of the Old Testament by people who have not read the Old Testament. Uh, King King David was a deeply, deeply duplicitous figure, a great one day and an utter nightmare other days. Uh, uh, He he, uh, wrote this very psalm because of a very egregious offense that he had committed. Now, yes, he protected Israel's borders. He kept them, for the most part, safe from idolatry. Nevertheless, he, at the apex of his... uh, 
performative career, committed uh, adultery with a married woman, impregnated her, and then had her husband um, killed, murdered in a sort of mafia-esque way. Uh, after this uh, tragic event occurred, and when David thought one hand washes the other and he got away with it, he was, of course, confronted by a very angry prophet named Nathan, uh, who told the king a little story. And the little story goes a little something like this. There was a, a very poor man with his little family who had one little lamb that they really treasured and, and uh, weren't raising it for the slaughter, but treated it like it was part of the family. And there was a wealthy man who had a lot of sheep who just decided, well, I don't have all the sheep, and I want all the sheep, and I want to take the poor man's sheep and make it my sheep and then kill the sheep. And that's what the, uh, the wealthy man did, stole the sheep. And David was so incensed by the story, because he thought he was just, like, this was CNN or something, you know, that he's just reporting the news. Nathan is just talking about what's happening in your country. And, and David lost his mind and said something that actually went over and above the Jewish law. He said, anybody who does that deserves to die. And then Nathan, in the King James Version, says, well, thou art the man, and not in a good way. <laughs> thou art the man. That is to say, you have been accused of that very thing. You stole a human being who didn't belong to you. You, d you were meant to be the keeper and protector of Israel, and you are the one who fulfills Samuel's old warning that the kings that would come would destroy you, would make your life a living hell, would take your daughters, would take your sons, and now David is guilty of those things. In response to Nathan's confrontation, David pens this particular work, this particular psalm. And several portions of tonight's psalm mention things, particular things, that are unique to David's situation and placement as monarch of Israel. Uh, the first thing, of course, is the subscription, not included in tonight's reading in our bulletin, but the Hebrew text says, a psalm of David. That is to say, this is the psalm that he himself wrote about his own experience. But several clues then within the psalm itself uh, suggest that this is a psalm unique to David. For example, uh, verse 4, where David writes these very bizarre words given his crime in verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned. You ever wonder about that? You know, maybe Bathsheba and Uriah, her husband, would have some objection to that turn of phrase. Uh, but it's, I think, very important to remember how is David confessing, or what po from what posture is David confessing this public crime? He is confessing not as your average Joe. He is confessing as Israel's failed king, and a king had a unique role in Israel's self-understanding. They were consecrated to God as defender and representative of God's people. And as we know throughout uh, the books of Kings and Chronicles, when the king sours, the people tend to sour along with him. The king had an inordinately influential role as representative and protector, and when they go bad, things tend to go bad for everybody. So when David fails in this egregious way, he fails not as just some average Joe, he fails as God's anointed, as his Mashiach, his anointed one. Uh, and so, uh, and so uh, David says that really his crime as monarch is against God. 
Then there's verse 11, another kind of monarchical uh, phrase where verse 11 says, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now, some people might say David is just being poetic that he doesn't want God's immediacy, God's presence, God's blessing to sort of dissipate, to fade over time. Oh, no, it's much worse than that. He's not being poetic. He is literally saying, don't abandon me like you did my predecessor. Who was his predecessor? Saul, King Saul. Not a mensch, not a guy that you, you know, want in your company, not a guy that you want as a friend. Uh, Saul was a, was a very bad king. He did many bad things, including killing a lot of clergy and, uh, and consulting with witches, evidently, in the, uh, on the weekend. And, uh, and so he was a deeply troubled person to the point where God's spirit that landed on Saul for the sake of giving him authority to rule and reign as king departed from Saul as David was anointed himself. So, uh, quite literally, the Holy Spirit abandons David's predecessor. And you can read about that in 1 Samuel 16 if you want. But the whole notion is that David, knowing his history and knowing his predecessor and knowing the fate, the suicidal fate of his predecessor, doesn't want the Spirit to flee from him as the Spirit fled from Saul. Then in verse 14, the text says, deliver me from blood guilt. Deliver me from blood guilt. Again, David is not being hyperbolic, metaphorical, over the top, and just describing the human condition. No, no, David was like literally guilty of that. He orchestrated somebody's death. He orchestrated a murder so he could get away with a crime. He wants to be cleansed like Pilate dipping his hands in the water. Uh, he wants his hands cleansed from literal blood. My point is quite simple here when I call it a royal confession. Psalm 51 is a royal confession because it spills from the pen of David who failed not only as your average man, average woman, you know, people that fail every day. No, he failed in a more particular way. He failed as king, as God's anointed one, God's man, God's chosen representative, God's protector of Israel, the one who was to, to embody the best of the law, the best of God's righteousness, to make it immediate to help the whole country, to lift the whole country through his example. He fails in that way. Uh, now, why, why am I pressing the point that this is a royal confession? I, I think it's for this reason. You know, many churches, and I've been to them, and they're all well-intentioned, and, uh, and uh, there's a lot of very applicable theology and, and scripture in Psalm 51, but many churches treat Psalm 51 just as the confession of every man, every woman. This is just the general human condition, and so I've been to churches where they literally get on their knees and for their confession within their service, say Psalm 51 together with one voice, hundreds of people saying it together. But here's the problem with that, just for what it's worth. Very few people here tonight, very few, have both committed adultery and then killed their romantic competitor in some mafia-esque manner. I mean, maybe only two or three of you have done that. Um, and then incurring blood guilt as Israel's theocratic monarch from whom the Holy Spirit would then depart. I just think that probably doesn't apply to your situation. Um, I was once in a, in a church uh, where I had a friend of mine say, Ethan, I lied in the confession today. And I said, what do you mean? And they had a very, very lengthy confession um, in which many, many sins were detailed. And uh, uh, one of the sins was that they had... Um, 
they had deliberately stolen something that week. And my friend said, look, I've done a lot of stuff this week, a lot, a lot of stuff. And it wasn't all mentioned in that confession, by the way. But I think I just perjured myself because I really sa- I said it, but I really didn't steal anything this week. Um, uh, the same could be said of, you know, Psalm 51, just being that it's a royal psalm. So all I'm saying is that this was not originally a common confession. It was a specific confession. This was David's voice offering David's sin to David's God. It's a royal confession. And yet, while this confession is unique to David, it does offer some universal ingredients that would be involved in any true confession. And I just want to talk about those universal ingredients too, because they're a part of this psalm and why um, <clears throat> why it's so helpful for us to consider tonight. So let me talk about the ingredients of confession. You know, there are three reoccurring ideas woven throughout Psalm 51. There is a direction, a crest to the psalm, but the ideas kind of come back like a, like a woven braid. Uh, three reoccurring ideas in this confession, and I think all true confession involves three, that is the lamenting of sin, the hope for mercy, and the trust in renewal. But sin mercy, and renewal. So let me talk about those. In verse 4, again, I want to go back to this verse because there's so much meaning in it. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Let me unpack some of the deep theology of those words. You know, true confession, if you want to have your soul situated, if you want to feel better than you do tonight, if you want your innards to be more calm, if you want to have a healthier and cleaner relationship with God and your fellow human beings, a true confession offers, uh, offers you an opportunity for something, which is this, to acknowledge sin as your most foundational crisis. Sin. Now, we have many, many crises in life, right? Many crises. So, you know, it's age, right? Age is a crisis, you know? You may feel that as you get older, you can't do what you used to do. You're, uh, you discover all sorts of maladies within your body. Every time you go to the doctor, you're terrified about what they're going to tell you. Uh, it, it could be um, limitations. You know, you're too short to play basketball or you can't learn algebra, right? Or you're psychologically, d- somebody, somebody said amen. Um, we're, we're, or we're psychologically dysfunctional, or we have family baggage that we've inherited, or that we're uneducated, right? Those issues, by the way, are all very real, uh, and um, and many of them important, but there is a graver crisis at work within the human condition, and it is sin. What is sin? Sin is preference for the profane. It's preference for the profane, because you were uh, created you are created with many different capacities in your life. You have an aesthetic capacity where you can appreciate beauty. You have, uh, a, a, you have a psychological capacities, mental capacities, physical capacities, many different ways that you relate to the world around you and relate to the God uh, from whom all things spring. Uh, but there is a sense in which when our moral nature is defiled, and when we were created by a God who defines himself in the terms of holiness, that is moral, not just perfection, but beauty, and we defy that at our very core, there is something that puts us at, um, um, at a great antagonism between us and our source. Uh, and so sin is the preference for the profane, that is the sin is rejection of God and all of the commandments of God that were given for our flourishing. 
And uh, what is wonderful about this passage is David owns it. David acknowledges it. I shed blood. Cleanse me of this blood guilt. And he says in other places, I am wicked, and I've not only been wicked recently, I've been wicked from the womb. He said, there's something about me that is defective to the core. He owns it. He owns his sin. So whatever confession is, it isn't just saying, I have problems, I wish I wasn't so depressed, I have relatives that drive me crazy. Confession is saying, uh, to um, quote uh, St. Taylor of the House of Swift, um, uh, it's me. I'm the problem, it's me. Right? Cultural connection. Um, so true confession acknowledged is sin as our foundational crisis defying the, beauteous, the beautiful nature of God and the beautiful nature in which we were created. Uh, but true confession of sin also acknowledges the most important offended party because David writes against you only, you only have I sinned. It's interesting, he goes right to God. He goes right to God. Now, there's a potent truth here because sin isn't just hard on the sinner, that is, creating all sorts of feelings of guilt and complexity within the person who sins, though that's true. And sin isn't only a blight upon those that we're sinning against, though that's, of course, true as well. But all sin is chiefly against God. David acknowledges that. What do I mean by that? Well, you have a potent, benevolent reality that creates you, me, and the moral fab uh, fabric that uh, is the backdrop of our world. And we very often think that when we lie to a friend, or when we abuse a spouse, or when we um, grow increasingly agitated with the world around us until hatred just spews from us constantly, that we're just hurting a person, or we're just hurting ourselves. But what we have to realize is that when we cheat, when we lie, when we rage out, we cheat, we lie, we rage out in God's world. Because foundationally, this is God's world. And when we uh, sin in any of those social capacities, we're also sinning in theological capacities. Because undergirding all of these relationships is uh, the God whose rule is unthwartable. And so ultimately all sin goes back to an offense against our maker and the ways of that maker. But also true confession, as David evidences here, takes responsibility for our own sins. Notice David owns his sin. He doesn't blame. This is critically important, critically important, because friends, I think we err not only in our unconfessed sin, but in our misconfessed sin misconfess sin. What do I mean? We love confessing sin. We do it all the time, nearly every day. We love confessing sin, just not our sin. We love confessing to the world or a certain circle of friends, a spouse's sin or a co-worker's sin or a department's sin or our children's sin or the government's sin. We just don't like talking about ours. So we confess all day long, but we don't actually confess in a biblical, uh, in a biblical manner, right? We just think to my, you know, if my idiot husband or wife would wake up to what I really need, or if my incorrigible daughter would stop being incorrigible, or my unpredictive, unpredict, unappreciative department would notice my work, if my irresponsible daughter would just stop tuning me, a doctor would stop tuning me out. Um, what I want to say to the person who complains in that way is, granted, sure, it's all true. They're all morons except you. It's all true. 
yes, if they changed, your life probably would be better. It's all true. Well, it's probably mostly true, or some of it's true. But here's the rub, the theological rub. You cannot confess on behalf of anyone else. God doesn't require that of you. You cannot confess for anyone else. You cannot stop any other human being from sinning. You can put them in prison, maybe, and they'll find a way to sin behind iron bars. You cannot stop anybody else from sinning. The only person you can square with in God's economy regarding your own personal sin is you. And David realizes this, so David confesses his own sin without blaming anybody else at the throne of God. So let me ask you this preachy, meddling question. How much, percentage-wise, how much do we lament over and confess the sins of other people, policies, or institutions, and what percentage of lament do we spend on our own sin? Because I think we have plenty within to deal with that would really occupy all of our time. So, true confession involves the lamenting and acknowledgement of sin. Also, true confession involves a hope for mercy. Mercy. In fact, in a sense, this entire psalm is a cry for mercy. It begins with David pleading for mercy. Those are the first words out of his mouth, dripping from his pen. Have mercy upon me. And then the psalm concludes at the altar, right? At the place that is known as the mercy seat, the place where sacrifices were given, where sacrifices of thanksgiving for mercy are given. So the whole thing in some ways is encapsulated by this concept of mercy. And what does mercy mean? Mercy is asking God to act without full retribution without full retribution. You know, David is smart. He knows that he's forfeited his right to be king over Israel, and that really if justice were full, he would die for his crimes. But he doesn't want to lose everything. In fact, he wants God to shred his file in some sense. Well, what do we want? Really, what do we need when we confess our own sins before God? Do we want God to be fair with us? Do we want, uh, do we want God to essentially pay back the favor, to give us what we owe, to make us settle the debt? Or uh, do we want God um, to remember our sins no more, to simply blot them out as if they never happened? Well, any hope that we have in this life regarding God is always predicated on mercy rather than fairness. Um, so I have a friend who is working right now, actually just quit, uh, for a very, very harsh company, in which there are, uh, and it's all about hyper-accountability, that's their phrase, hyper-accountability, and they have managers uh, um, who have this practice, whenever their underlings make a clerical error or a professional blunder, they put it on PowerPoint once a week on Mondays to show everybody at the beginning of the week so that you know who made the mistake and that you yourself don't repeat the mistake of the person they regard as a moron. Now, I asked my friend, what does this result in, in terms of the company? And he said two things. One, lying. Uh, you hide your mistakes as, uh, as, uh, as well as you can. And turnover. People just keep quitting, right? Because that kind of culture doesn't suit human beings. 
who are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Friends, I think this whole cry for mercy is something that all of us are desperate for. I think we're more desperate for it than oxygen because the more we really know ourselves, the more we know we do not have a leg to stand on, we are not credible in our own persons, we need God to be unjust with us. Now, you may say, well, that's theologically dubious because God is not unjust. I agree with you. So how does it all square out? Well, Romans tells us that in Christ Jesus, and particularly in the gruesome death of Christ Jesus, God was both just, because he punishes sin in the the, uh, bleeding, crucified Christ, God is just and the justifier of those who believe. Justice is always settled because Jesus gave his credibility when you had none. And that's a free gift of love, and that's mercy, mercy that cost God everything but gave it for you out of sheer love, a love to the degree that we'll never understand. And so David cries for mercy, have mercy upon me. And David also prays for one more thing in this confession, and this is critically important. He prays for renewal. That is, David wants his life to be rebuilt. He doesn't just want to mire, roll around in sorrow for the rest of his life. He wants his life to be rebuilt. There's lots of recovery language, new life language in this passage. Verse 2, cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Verse 8, you shall wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 10, created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Verse 12, O give me the comfort of your help again and sustain me with your willing spirit. Verse 13, then shall I teach your ways unto the wicked and sinners shall return unto you. Verse 18, build up the walls of Jerusalem. All this recovery language. He says, take my record, wash it away. Give me something new inside so that I don't function like I used to function, right? Uh, um, And then you'll give me opportunity to warn other people not to walk in the same paths I walked. And more than that, you're going to help the city. The city's going to be better off because I'll be a better king. You know, all of this recovery language, David has hope for a future and expectation that his horrific misjudgments and abuse will not rule the future that both he as well as his circumstances, because of God's redeeming nature, will improve, that he'll get a clean heart and Jerusalem will be all right. Where does David get the tenacity to ask such a thing? I mean, he's the one entirely in the wrong. God owes him nothing. And yet, he has all this happy expectation that God will give him all these good gifts when he is the least deserving man on the planet. Where does he get this idea? Like the whole Old Testament, pretty much the whole Old Testament. What is the pattern in the whole Old Testament? God just doesn't resist repenters. He's never been able to do that. doesn't manage that very well. He doesn't resist repenters. Just look at Israel's history, right? What happens with Israel's history? They get blessed through some miraculous intervention, some providential bit of goodness. They get a little arrogant because of it. They get a little um, proud. They then self-obsess They often turn to other gods so that they can preserve their success through dubious means of worship. Then God enters the framework through the law covenant and whacks them, and then they become humiliated and humble, and then they're open again to God's new direction. And then God takes them back time after time, time after time, decade after decade, year after year. That's just what happens Uh, And David knows that pattern and knows that he, even though he's completely unworthy and ridiculous, when he calls out to that God, he'll be given mercy, but also renewal. Renewal. Now, I I want to simply say that David understands that confession involves both 
God's mercy and God's renewal. What do I mean? God's plan for your sin is twofold. Forgiveness and annihilation. That God is not content simply to say, there, there, it's all better, um, because I say it's better. That's part of it. God is also saying, and now I'm going to begin to extract the very dark elements that roam around in your heart so that you'll be freer in me. So forgiveness and annihilation is what God has in his plan for you and for me. Now, that's a wonderful word, but I have to tell you in a confessional manner, sometimes I want my sin forgiven but not removed. You ever been that way? Of course. You want your sin forgiven and not removed. You know, it's like I don't want the guilt to linger, but I don't want recovery either. Why? Because sin brings a modicum of comfort in the present, especially if that's all you're used to, or it's some reactive device to stave you off from past pain, or whatever. Um, And yet, God's plan is for both forgiveness and annihilation when it comes to sin. So David makes this bold prayer before God, asking that he would experience real restoration, a new life that is less damaging. And that really ought to be part of our prayer of confession. Not that God would just leave us where we are in the cesspool of despondency, sin, and despair, but that God would graciously take us by the hand through his wounded hand and lead us to wider places. And so, friends, uh, Psalm 51 is a royal psalm. It is David's cry as a failed king. But it contains the ingredients of any true confession, that is, the acknowledgement of sin, the hope for mercy, and the trust in renewal. So let me close by telling you this. You know, Christianity, whatever it is, is not an opiate to falsely dull the pain of life. No, because we embrace in the heart of our faith the whole notion of confession. And whatever confession it is, it is not some easy comfort or wish fulfillment. The gospel brings us consolation, but first it brings us discomfort namely discomfort with our own sin, discomfort with blaming other people, discomfort from hiding sin away, discomfort. Um, But it also, the gospel gives us a deeper brand of comfort than our sin can offer. And that comfort is found in the one to whom we confess. That's where true comfort is to be found because you, when you pray, when you confess your sin directly to God, you do not confess to a a mercurial thug like King David. Instead, you confess your sins to the son of David, the true king, the heir, Jesus of Nazareth, who was the friend of pathetic people and out-of-control sinners just like you and me and David himself. And you can talk to him about anything because he has already passed this way. He has already borne it on his shoulders, all of the blood guilt of the whole world. And he won't take his Holy Spirit from you because he's promised to be with us till the end of the age. He's not budging, he's not scared, and he's not grossed out because he's already faced your sin and definitively conquered it at Calvary. So when you confess the worst things that you've ever done, things that you can barely think about, let alone speak about, when you do this, Jesus is the one to whom you are confessing. When you give it utterance, when you turn your darkness into speech, 
Friends, there is liberty to be found. The atmosphere changes. Light breaks into the valley of the shadow of death. Mercy floods your wastelands, and renewal begins to take place in the abandoned places. My friend uh, Tish Warren writes these words. Confession reminds us that none of us gather for worship because we are pretty good people. Our communal practice of public confession reminds us that um, failure in the Christian life is very real and very normative. We, each and all, take part in our gathered worship as unworthy people who, left to our own devices, deserve God's condemnation. But we are not left on our own. One close friend attended my Anglican church, and she was concerned by the part of the service when the priest pronounced absolution. She asked, don't we receive forgiveness immediately from God and not a priest? Why the go-between? I told her, look, forgiveness is directly from God, and yet I still need to be told. I need to hear it in a loud voice that I am forgiven by a voice that is truer, louder, and more tangible than the accusing voices within my own head, for grace is stronger than sin. So, if you want to resurrect a dead marriage, confess your sins to God. If you want to soothe a hateful heart, confess your sins to God. If you want to have fewer strained relationships, when it comes to your parent or your child, confess your sins to God. You want to have less anxiety, confess your sins to God. Do you want to experience a life that is brimming full of mercy and restoration? Confess your sins to God because no matter what, you will always confess to a Christ who died for mercy's sake and that mercy is yours so you have got nothing to lose but your chains. Amen. Free at last, they took your life, they could not take your